Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. I'll be reading Daniel chapter 10 and a few verses from chapter 11. In the third year of King Cyrus of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. The word was true, and it concerned a great conflict. He understood the word, having received understanding in the vision. At that time, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three weeks. I had eaten no rich food, no meat or wine. No meat or wine had entered my mouth, and I had not anointed myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I looked up and saw a man clothed in linen with a belt of gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the roar of a multitude. I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. The people who were with me did not see the vision, though a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone to see this great vision. My strength left me, and my complexion grew deathly pale, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and when I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a trance, face to the ground. But then a hand touched me and I roused me to my knees, hands and knees. He said to me, Daniel, greatly beloved, pay attention to the words that I am going to speak to you. Stand on your feet, for I have now been sent to you. So while he was speaking this word to me, I stood up trembling. He said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me 21 days. So Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I left him there with the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And I have come to help you understand what is to happen to your people at the end of days. For there is further vision for those days. While he was speaking these words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one in human form touched my lips and I opened my mouth to speak and said to the one before me, My Lord, because of the vision, such pains have come upon me that I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For I am shaking, no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one in human form touched me and strengthened me. He said, Do not fear, greatly beloved, you are safe. Be strong and courageous. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened, and he said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? Now I must return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I am through with him, the prince of Greece will come, but I am to tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. 
There is no one with me who contends against these princes except Michael, your prince. And from chapter 11, verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. He shall advance against countries and pass through like a flood. He shall come into the beautiful land and tens of thousands shall fall victim. But Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites shall escape from his power. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become the ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the riches of Egypt and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow in his train. But reports from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to bring ruin and complete destruction to many. He shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with no one to help him. And from the New Testament, from the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6, I'm reading from verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power, Put on the whole armour of God, so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me, so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. This is the word of the Lord. It's a fairly universal experience for children uh, to go through a period of uh, being afraid of the dark. I don't know if this happened to you. Did this happen to you when you were a child? At some point you were afraid of the dark? Yep, it happens to my kids as well. Uh, the darkness is, is a threatening thing, of course, because when it's dark, you can't actually see what's around you. When it's dark, you don't know what's there. And once you're aware that you can't see what's around you, all kinds of thoughts might start to creep in about what might be there, whether it's actually there or not. Uh, it's easy to begin imagining that there are monsters under the bed. It's a frightening, uh, frightening thought, of course. Uh, and, of course, at the same time, it's a fear that's based on unreality, right? I mean, it's just, it's just, not, it's just not true. Uh, there's no monsters under the bed. There's nothing there, uh, even though, if asked, mum and dad will go and check under the bed just to reassure you know, their kid that there's really nothing there, it's really okay. The fear is unfounded, and it's a fear that uh, eventually we grow out of, except if we don't, of course. 
Uh, one of the kids' books that we enjoy reading with my uh, five-year-old daughter is uh, by comedian Tim Minchin. Uh, it's based on a song that he wrote for his uh, musical adaptation of uh, Roald Dahl's book, Matilda. Uh, it's called When I Grow Up. You can see the cover on the screen here. Uh, it's written from the perspective of a child who's kind of listing all the stuff they look forward to being able to do when they're a grown-up. Uh, it's, um, uh, you know, stuff like uh, climb tall trees, eat whatever you want, watch as much TV as you want, all that kind of stuff. Uh, now, in my experience, and you can try and convince me later if you think I'm wrong, in my experience, Tim Minchin's not all that kind of sophisticated or deep as a comedian, right? But whether by design or by accident, uh, the second half of uh, this particular book takes a quite a poignant turn, I think. It gets a little bit less silly and a bit more deep. It actually addresses the monsters under the bed. Uh, here's a particular page uh, that I have in mind. You can see it there on the screen. Here's what it says. And when I grow up, I will be brave enough to fight the creatures that you have to fight beneath your bed each night to be a grown-up. Uh, from the perspective of the child uh, in the book, of course, grown-ups are brave monster slayers, and yet there's kind of an admission there that actually sometimes there are still monsters under the bed even when you're grown-up. Uh, adults are supposed to be ready to kind of check the dark corners and make sure that everything's safe, but of course sometimes we don't feel all that safe, do we, even as grown-ups? If we're honest, we don't always even feel that brave about facing the things that we think might be lurking around us. I wonder what some of those uh, monsters under the bed might be for you. What kinds of things are you afraid of? Uh, even if gro as grown-ups, of course, just like kids, so much that we're afraid of turns out to be fiction. The monsters aren't actually real, or at best they're a kind of half-truth. We worry that people are talking about us behind our backs uh, when the reality is that most of the time people aren't even thinking of you at all, actually, let alone to talk to you about someone else. Uh, we imagine that people secretly don't like us when the reality is that those same people are also imagining that you might secretly not like them. We're afraid that we won't have enough to get by when the reality is that actually we make ends meet just fine all the time. There's no reason to think that things will get worse. We experience major setbacks in our work or in relationships and expect them to define the rest of our lives when the reality is that in a few months' time everything will be fine again and it'll, be go, and it'll go back to normal. There's all kinds of fears we face, and often they're based on kind of half-truths or unrealities. The backdrop of rising international tensions and distressing political developments all over the world, of course, only increases our sense, nonetheless, that something might be lurking there in the darkness. In these chapters of Daniel, uh, Daniel himself is, is overwhelmed by the realities that God has revealed to him in these visions. He's terrified by what he sees. Uh, verse 8, my strength left me, my complexion grew deathly pale, I retained no strength I fell into a trance, face to the ground. Again in verse 16, such pains have come upon me that I retain no strength. I'm shaking, no strength remains in me, no breath is left in me. But it turns out as the chapter goes on that Daniel's fear is the result of only understanding half of what's really going on. He only has half the picture of what's actually going on in reality. And so what we see in this chapter, particularly in chapter 10, we will focus our attention tonight, is God's messenger, the angel Gabriel, peeling back the surface layer of reality to show Daniel what's really going on underneath. He kind of pulls back the covers, if you like, opens the cupboard door to see whether or not there's any monsters in there. And this fuller picture of reality that Daniel receives brings him strength and comfort. And in God's kindness, the reality revealed in these chapters can give you and me strength and comfort too and show us indeed how to engage with the troubled times that we find ourselves in, no matter what monsters there might be lurking in your minds, perhaps, or beneath the bed. 
Sorry, three points as we unpack these uh, chapters together. Point one, the trouble behind troubled times. Point two, confronting troubled times. And point three, comfort for troubled times. How about we start at point one? Good place to start. The trouble behind troubled times. Uh, We're uh, going to start at the end, actually, with that last part of chapter 11 that was read for us. Uh, The reason is that chapter 10 is really kind of an extended introduction to the actual vision that Daniel receives in chapter 11. And the vision itself uh, covers the same kind of historical ground as chapter 8 that we looked at a few weeks ago, just in greater detail with more information about particular battles, particular kings, the ebb and flow of military campaigns and, and marriage alliances, particularly between different nations. But it concludes by once again describing the horrors of the reign of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who oppressed God's people in horrible ways in the second century. And then it shifts at the very end in the section that we uh, had read for us to describing another unknown king uh, who actually will come, uh, we read, at the end of, at the time of the end. Whoever this king is, and it's, it's not clear actually, the function of his presence at the end of this vision is to reinforce that point that was made in chapter 8. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, there are tyrants in the world, that's just the pattern of the way things are. No surprises here. Even someone as, as um, uh, destructive as Antiochus IV Epiphanes is just one instance of the generic type of tyrants who exist in our world, who raise their ugly heads at various points throughout history. But in the introduction to this vision, in chapter 10, we learn that there's actually something else going on beneath that ebbing and flowing pattern of history. Behind the troubles on earth, there's a great conflict in heaven. There's trouble behind the trouble. So skip back with me to the beginning of chapter 10. Uh, Verse 1, in the third year of King Cyrus of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. The word was true, and it concerned a great conflict. Already from verse 1, we're told there's another conflict going on here. There's something else happening besides the things that Daniel's already distressed about as he sees the kind of empires that are going to rage across the earth and and harm little old Israel caught in the middle of them, as, as they so often are. There's another conflict going on beneath the surface, behind the curtain of these earthly realities. Now, as the chapter goes on, we're told that Daniel had been fasting, asking for answers about the visions that he's received in chapters 8 and 9. You might remember that even after the angel Gabriel's explanation of the vision in chapter 8, Daniel still doesn't understand what the vision's about. And here he is, actually two years after that first vision in Daniel chapter 8, having decided, I need to know what's going on. So he fasts for three weeks. And then, after three weeks, Gabriel turns up. He comes back again. Uh, and let me just kind of you know, race through what happens in these, these conversations. Uh, essentially, I don't know if you noticed this, essentially what Gabriel says is, sorry I'm late. Sorry it took so long to get here. And I, I know, you know, you kind of prayed weeks ago and God said, sure, yeah, yeah, no, we, can, we can talk about that, that's fine. And, and um, it's taken me three weeks to get here, apologies. But he comes armed with an excuse as well. He says, I've been fighting the Prince of Persia. But don't worry, my mate Michael turned up to hold the fort so that I could come and deliver the message, but i got to get back there really quickly so I can finish the job and then get on with the the Prince of Greece. That's what Gabriel says is going on. What? I mean, you know, angels, cosmic conflicts, um, battles, princes. What the heck is going on here? It's good for us to slow down for a moment and just actually kind of think about what's going on. What do we make all this? Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about angels, right, and try and clear some of this up, hey? How fun. Uh, You probably have some kind of mental image of angels when you think of angels, probably drawn from popular culture, maybe something a little bit like this. Cute. 
little cherubs. This is from a painting by uh, the master, Raphael. This is not what angels are like in the Bible, just to put that right out there from the beginning. Uh, here are some uh, more biblically accurate visualizations of angels. You can Google this. It's really fun, biblically accurate angels. Go and look at it on Google Images. You'll find some great stuff. Uh, this is, you know, these, these are called cherubs. We call these cherubs in our kind of you know, art history. Um, but here's what the actual cherubim described in Ezekiel look like, according to Ezekiel. A little less cute. Uh, here is uh, the, the seraphim who are described in Isaiah with their six wings covering all kinds of different parts of their body. Uh, in the, the book of Revelation, at the end of the scriptures, uh, there's kind of something uh, called a living creature. It's like a seraphim, but kind of on steroids with eyes all over it everywhere. Ooh. No wonder when angels turn up, the first thing they almost always say is, don't be afraid. And everyone goes, are you kidding? I'm, of course I'm going to be afraid. Uh, here's another type of biblical angel, the weirdest of all, I think, again from uh, the uh, prophet Ezekiel. What? Um, rings and spirits living inside them and eyes all around the outside. Bizarre. Angels. Weird. Not what we often expect uh, when we think about uh, kind of angels in popular culture. Uh, now, the prince who appears to Daniel here, um, who's not named in chapter 10, but um, it seems quite likely, um, almost certain that it's the same angel Gabriel who turned up in previous chapters. Uh, he's described in a way that's not quite so weird as some of those pictures. He's described as a man, as someone who's in human form, and yet he's no normal man at all. Verse 5, I looked up and saw a man clothed in linen with a belt of gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the roar of a multitude. Uh, when this man, such as he is, opens his mouth, it's like uh, listening to a stadium at a, sports, uh, um, a sporting match kind of just erupt. He's one scary dude. And Daniel is unsurprisingly terrified. Uh, all these different uh, kinds, types of angels look quite different. Um, but actually, there's lots of angels in the Bible also that appear pretty much indistinguishable from humans, uh, like the angels at the empty tomb who tell uh, the women and the disciples that Jesus has been raised. They're wearing like really, really bright, shiny clothes. But other than that, they just kind of look like you and me. The thing, of course, you've got to know about angels is that they don't actually have bodies at all. They're creatures, just like you and me. They're not divine. They're made by God. They're creatures. But unlike you and me, they don't actually have any physical form. And so who knows whether cherubim actually look like those kinds of things. They appear in often quite symbolic ways at different points in the Scriptures. They have actually no body, no physical form. Uh, they're spiritual beings. Uh, what, what do they do? Well, uh, basically, the Scriptures tell us that angels are kind of like prime ministerial aides to God. They're kind of like his, his senior staff, if you like. They do his bidding they deliver and interpret messages to his people. They uh, guard the things that are sacred, like the angels with flaming swords outside Eden when Adam and Eve get kicked out. They worship God like the living creatures who surround the throne of God in Ezekiel and Revelation. They enact God's judgment like the angels who bring the plagues to Egypt during the Exodus. Uh, but they also actually look after God's people, often in, in quite direct ways. Now, we see that uh, here in, in Daniel. Uh, in verse 21, uh, Michael is referred to as uh, your prince, and it seems as though there are angels who God gives charge over particular nations. Michael's job is to defend Israel against the cosmic forces that are arrayed against them. In Revelation chapter 12, uh, that same uh, angel, uh, Michael, is described as an archangel, and, and he leads God's armies in battle against the powers of darkness, and he's the one who in the end defeats Satan. He seems to be some kind of powerful angel with this special task to defend and fight for Israel. 
That happens at a national level, it seems. Uh, but angels are also sent by God to care for individuals. Uh, you might know the verse uh, from Psalm 91. We're told that God will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And Jesus instructs his disciples to care for uh, those he calls the little ones because their angels continually see the face of the Father in heaven. They've got angels looking out for them. What's the point of all this? It's fun, right? Can't kind of talk about angels a little bit, but what's, what's the actual point? What do the scriptures tell us anything about angels like this? Uh, quite simply, it's that there's more going on in the world than we can see. The material reality immediately available to our senses isn't all that there is in this world that God has made. Behind the earthly realities, there are spiritual heavenly realities at work. Not only in Daniel's day, of course, but in our, uh, in our day too. And, you know, there's no details given to us about this, so you've got to be careful not to speculate too much. But there's no reason from the scriptures to think that behind the war going on in Ukraine, and the conflicts in Syria and Yemen, and the, the tyrants who rule in places like North Korea, that there are spiritual wars raging as well, with the whole host of, of heaven involved in fighting the forces of darkness. But even more than just simply that fact that actually there's more going on than you can see in the world is this fact that God has his angels who fight for his people. Behind the curtain of history, that kind of pattern that plays again and again and again and crushes little people like you and me and little nations like Israel, in the background of all that, even when we can't see it, beings far more powerful than you and I have been sent out by our God to confront the forces of evil and darkness in our defence. Weird, though, right? Weird? Is anyone else thinking, really? Angels? Really? A bit much? It's easy for us, I think, to fall into the kind of materialist thinking that dominates our culture. Uh, reality is what can be accessed with our senses and tested empirically using scientific method. But we've got to remember that the Bible's description of reality is much richer than that, much thicker than that, much bigger than that. There's plenty that we just don't have access to and can't see in the spiritual realm. And to be honest, we believe weirder things than angels. We believe that God, by his spirit, lives in you if you trust in Jesus. We believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. I mean, there's weirder stuff going on than angels. Don't be an accidental materialist just because your culture is. There's plenty that we don't have access to and we can't see. And one of the things that's going to mean for us is actually just a deep humility. You can't know everything that's going on. There's stuff happening all around you that you have no idea about. The Bible doesn't give us all the details. It doesn't encourage us to look for them either. God, in his kindness, tells us just enough to know that the rise and fall of empires is the surface-level reality that reflects spiritual and heavenly realities that are well above our pay grade. And not only that, but the scriptures at various points make clear those same forces are involved, uh, even at the, le the level of your life and mine, little old us here. Angels at work to defend God's people. That leads, I think, to the obvious question. If we're not particularly meant to dig around for the details about the spiritual battles being fought behind the scenes, then what are we actually supposed to do as a result of this knowledge, of knowing that reality is so much more than just what we see in front of us with our eyes and our senses? It's well above our pay grade, yes, to know what's going on in the background, and yet getting a fuller picture of reality does help us to confront the troubled times in which we find ourselves, and that's what we're going to see, point two, confronting troubled times. Uh, here's the headline. What are we supposed to do about the great conflict that is revealed to us, is going on in the background even when we can't see it? We're to do what Daniel does, we're to pray. Uh, we know uh, already from earlier in the book uh, that Daniel is faithful in his prayers. 
Uh, Three times a day, he makes time for prayer, uh, even in the period where it was made illegal to pray to anyone except the king. David goes into his room three times a day and prays to the true and living God. And it's his faithfulness in prayer in the end that gets him thrown into the lion's den. Uh, Given his faithfulness in prayer, it's no surprise to find him at prayer in response to the visions that he receives in these last chapters of Daniel. He prays at great length in chapter 9, as we saw last week, uh, confessing his own sin, confessing the sins of Israel, asking God to intervene for his people. And here in chapter 10, he's been fasting, asking God for clarity about the visions that he's received. Uh, Here's the thing to notice. His prayer is actually effective. Look at what Gabriel says to Daniel, verse 12. Uh, He said to me, Don't fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God... Your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Uh, Don't miss how startling that is. At least I I find it pretty startling. Uh, Here's this terrifyingly loud and shiny warrior angel who's terrifying to Daniel, and he says, Daniel, I've come because of your prayer. Daniel, who's been bedridden and weakened and fainted because of the visions he's received. Daniel, who, despite being a senior advisor to the king of Persia, knows that he can't do anything to change the pattern of history that's been revealed to him. This Daniel prayed, and the archangel Gabriel was dispatched. Isn't that pretty pretty remarkable when you think about it? Uh, One of the commentators on Daniel writes, I love this line, he writes, when Daniel prays, angels go to war. As little and weak as Daniel is, his prayers, you see, have cosmic significance. There are two things worth noticing about that. Uh, Firstly is what it is that actually makes Daniel's prayer effective, gives it that kind of cosmic relevance. Uh, The reason it's effective on that level is because of who he prays to. If you've seen an angel like Gabriel, you can imagine someone going, you know what, I'm going to keep praying to that guy, Gabriel, I want him. Gabriel, come back, just calling out to Gabriel for help. But that's not who, who Daniel prays to at all, is it? Daniel prays to the one who is Gabriel's commander. Uh, Occasionally, I've heard people say that uh, it's a great idea to pray to angels. Why wouldn't you want to invoke the help of angels in your life? Or, for that matter, to pray to the great saints who've died and who are now with the Lord. Fairly common, uh, as you may know, in uh, in the Roman Catholic tradition. Uh, Often the argument is that praying to angels or saints is a little bit like having access to the Prime Minister's staff, right? Pretty cool. How good is it if you can just go and see Prime Minister Albanese's chief of staff and say, here's what I want the, the Prime Minister to do? Access, useful. The thing is, why would you go to the Prime Minister's staff if you have direct access to the Prime Minister himself, right? That's not how Daniel prays. He doesn't pray to the kind of the next tier down. And it's not the model that Jesus gives us in our prayers either. Daniel, you see, he goes all the way to the top, if you like. He goes over Gabriel's head to the one who has authority to give commands, even to the archangels. When we pray, God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the maker of heaven and earth, he hears our prayers and sends his powerful warriors to fight for us. And Jesus teaches us, of course, this is one of the most remarkable things that happens in the the, the shift in the New Testament as Jesus makes us his family. Jesus teaches us that we can come to this God not only as the supreme commander of the, the angel of armies, the Lord of hosts, but as our Father. The heavenly armies do the bidding of one who loves us as his own sons and daughters. If that doesn't motivate you to get about the business of praying, I'm not sure what will. So firstly, notice who it is that Daniel prays to. He goes straight to the top, and therefore his prayers can and do take on cosmic significance. But secondly, notice that Daniel had no idea of the cosmic significance of his prayers as he prayed them. He had no idea what was going on. 
behind the curtain until Gabriel turns up and, and says it to him. Uh, now, if Daniel, who interprets dreams for kings by the power of God and receives visions of his own from God's angels, if he didn't know the cosmic effect that his prayers were having on a day-to-day basis, then we shouldn't expect to either, I don't think. So what this calls us to do, this text before us today, is to uh, get about the business of praying with confidence, trusting that our Heavenly Father hears our prayers, and that they really do shape reality on both a cosmic and an earthly level. We shouldn't expect to be able to see exactly what those things look like. And in fact, there's no call here either to pray, God, please send the angel of um, Afghanistan to look after them after the earthquake. That's not what we're being asked to do. But our prayers to our Father, Lord, please help those people in that terrible situation, has cosmic effects, sees him send his angels to respond to our prayers. There are spiritual heavenly realities beyond our earthly material realities, spiritual battles raging in the background that we can't see, actually. Uh, What are we supposed to do with that knowledge? Uh, Well, it's not just a weird Old Testament thing, actually. There's instruction for us here from the New Testament as well. We heard some of it in Ephesians chapter 6. Listen again to Ephesians chapter 6 from verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Not just for Daniel, this is our task as well. This is actually what's going on for us in our day-to-day lives, even though we can't see it, even though it's under the surface. But here, of course, is the point that Paul makes in Ephesians 6, right? God has kitted us out for the battle, hasn't he? He's given us everything that we need in order to stand firm. And the key to it all, Paul's conclusion after laying out the armour of God is this, verse 18, pray in the spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. So they end to keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. When you know that there's a spiritual battle raging all around you, that we are uh, there are forces of darkness arrayed against us in the spiritual realm, what's your response to that? Prayer. When you hear talk of spiritual warfare, what are you supposed to think of straight away as your response to that, your investment and engagement in that? Prayer. And especially, notice, Paul says, for two things. Prayer for one another, that we would all together stand firm in the fight as God's people. And, as Paul continues at the end of that chapter, for the spread of the gospel. If you want to know an earthly sign of the cosmic realities going on all around, if you want to really actually see here in our earthly realities the effects of that cosmic battle... There is nothing that will show that more clearly than God's people walking together in love and holiness and that the Father is bringing more and more people out of darkness into the light of his Son by the power of his Spirit. As Jesus himself tells us, the angels of heaven rejoice over every single sinner who repents, Luke 15. There's nothing of greater, more cosmic significance than when someone puts their trust in the Lord Jesus and when his people continue to walk after him in faithfulness. That's what it looks like on our end to be engaged in this battle that rages in the background. So the spiritual realities playing out behind our earthly ones and we confront these realities by persisting faithfully in prayer. That's the task given to us. But we don't always see the results of our prayers, certainly not on a cosmic level and often enough, to be frank, on an earthly level either. So how are we going to press on through troubled times when we can't see the results of all of these things? Well, in addition to the means for confronting troubled times, uh, Daniel's vision here holds out comfort to us for those times as well. Point three, and we'll finish here um, pretty quickly. 
comfort for troubled times. Uh, I kind of alluded to it before, but I don't know if you noticed as uh, Katrina was reading for us, uh, what I think is the most troubling aspect of this whole passage, the one thing that goes, ooh, that doesn't feel great, that's a bit worrying. Gabriel's visit to Daniel is delayed by opposing angelic forces, right? Sorry I'm late, he says, busy fighting the prince of Persia. Uh, Read uh, with me from uh, verse 12. Uh, Gabriel says uh, to Daniel, Don't fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me 21 days. God heard Daniel's prayer on day one and dispatched Gabriel to answer him, this mighty archangel warrior. But even this angel was held up in battle, actually couldn't just get on with the job and turn up at Daniel's doorstep straight away. Um, Side note, how's that for an answer to that question of why sometimes it takes so long to get an answer to your prayers? Hmm. I think it's because the angel who's bringing you an answer got held up in battle somewhere. Maybe, I don't know. But notice what it is that Gabriel actually does for Daniel when he does arrive on the scene. When he comes to Daniel, he comes to a man who is completely strung out by everything that God has shown him, overwhelmed by this reality of the the march of history and how it's going to do great damage to God's people, even though there is an end, God says, in sight. He's completely strung out by these visions. He's overwhelmed. But God's angel comforts him. Every single time that Daniel falls, God's angel lifts him up again. Verse 9, Daniel says, When I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a trance, face to the ground. But then a hand touched me and raised me to my hands and knees. And then later, Daniel's unable to speak. Verse 16, And one in human form touched my lips, and I opened my mouth to speak. And then again, Daniel is overcome by pain and shaking and breathlessness. Verse 18, And again, one in human form touched me and strengthened me. And that third time, the angel speaks uh, these beautiful words of comfort to Daniel. Verse 19, he said, Do not fear, greatly beloved. You are safe. Be strong and courageous. Now, the fact that Gabriel is delayed 21 days in battle with the Prince of Persia, that makes you ask the question, I think, um, can Gabriel really guarantee Daniel's safety? This one who was delayed in combat? The truth, of course, is that no, Gabriel couldn't guarantee Daniel's safety. But God can. And not only that, but God uh, not only can guarantee Daniel's safety and yours and mine, but he has guaranteed it for us in the Lord Jesus, who has overthrown every power and authority in the spiritual realm, as well as here in the material realities that we see. Jesus has done it. Uh, You might remember that uh, in the garden on the night before Jesus died, uh, one of his disciples, Peter, tried to defend him from the the mob who'd come to to arrest him uh, by pulling out this tiny little sword, chopped a guy's ear off, It's kind of a little bit pathetic, really, when you read it. But I don't know if you remember what what Jesus actually says in response. Jesus says, put your sword in its place. Do you not think that I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen in this way? You see, there is one who has all the Father's armies of angels at his disposal, but instead of calling on them, he walked into the arms of the cosmic powers of darkness and let them do their worst to him. He went to the cross where all the fears, all the monsters under the bed that terrorise us were poured out on him, 
And bearing it all in himself, he disarmed every ruler and every authority and every, uh, every power, exhausting them so they no longer had any power over him at all. He won the victory in his death and resurrection over sin, the world, and the devil. And because he's won the victory, then no cosmic power, no evil, no darkness, no sin, not one of those monsters lurking under our beds has any power over those who belong to him. The one true and living Lord who sits at the Father's right hand in glory deploys now his legions of angels at his command to protect the people whom he loves. Not shielding us from every suffering, but making us stand firm until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. And while we wait, we hear the words that were spoken to Daniel by an angel in human form, now spoken over us by the one who is not only in human form, but fully human and fully God as well, our Saviour Jesus Christ, who says to you and me and to each one of us, do not be afraid, greatly beloved. You are safe. Be strong and courageous. Let's pray that we would be those things as we trust in this mighty God. Our Father, you are far beyond our understanding in so many ways. You've made this incredible world that we don't understand all of, this world where we only see, even in part. We know, Father, there's much more going on than we can see. That could be cause, Father, for us to be fearful, for us to be worried about the cosmic realities going on in the background that we have no direct influence or control over. And yet we know that your angels attend to the Lord Jesus and because he has died and been raised again, he now sends them out to, to attend to us. We have nothing to fear, Father, because our Lord Jesus has exhausted every power and authority that stood against him and now sits at your right hand in glory. And Father, we know that he went there because he loves us. He said no to invoking that power that was by rights his, so that we might share in his glory and honour, so that we might be safe at his side. And so, Father, help us to be strong and courageous, to be faithful in serving him as we serve alongside your angels and the heavenly hosts. And, Father, give us great joy and delight as we lean into and rest in his goodness and his power exercised for us. We ask this for your glory and the power of your spirit. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.